Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine where this week we're chatting to Dan McDorman. Dan works as a news producer for the TV channel in the States, MSNBC. He is an Emmy nominated one too. And he's got a novel out which is quite remarkable really. It's called West Heart Kill. It's a murder mystery with a heavy emphasis on the mystery. We talk about why he doesn't write linearly, which must be quite tough with a puzzle at play. Also how producing news telly affects story writing and the ideas that he has. And you can hear why he wrote the book really to answer one question that his detective asked straight away. The detective, when he arrives there, he, he sees this wall of plaques, each one uh, marking the tenure of a past club president. And he notices that one of the plaques is missing. Dun-dun-dun, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and I had no idea why, but that was the sort of um, seed of the, of the plot. And so it became a little bit of the tail wagging the dog. I was constructing what turned out to be a fairly elaborate, complicated... Um, storyline just to answer that one problem that one riddle for myself which is why the hell is that that plaque missing there is more with dan mcdorman on the way in this week's writer's routine Welcome along. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. Thank you so much for listening, for following, for streaming and sharing. I am very excited. Our sponsors for this week's episode uh, is Plotter. If you missed the fantastic offer earlier on in the year, you can make the most of it now. Plotter is a writing tool that does what it says on the tin. It, It plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think, helping you outline faster organize smarter and it will turbocharge your productivity when you open the software you get a digital cork board with everything that you need in front of you you can color code your characters your place your themes you can really lay it out there granularly uh, which helps you chop and change keep track you can pick you can lift you can move you can swap however you want in a writing world where there are so many tips and so many different ways to help you get your story down this takes it back to the spine of everything, what you need to know. It reminds you of that and makes it really easy for you to keep track of what's going on. It's like having the most comprehensive notebook and writing guide, but 
on your screen so it never needs to go anywhere. Now, we can spend a lot of time faffing around with the window dressing uh, of simply writing a novel, and this strips it back to what is important. The best way for you to see what it does, how stunning it looks, and how helpful it can be is by getting to go.plotter.com routine and taking a look around. By going on that link, which is in the episode notes of the show, you get 10% off the software with us too. They are sponsoring this week and a little while longer too. Uh, so go take a look around at get to go.plotter.com routine. Now, a few weeks ago, I was on holiday with quite a lot to do, actually. It was really tough to get it done because I was very gripped to West Hart Kill from this week's guest, Dan McDorman. One of those novels, and you'll hear why in a second, but it's, it's like plotted in such a way that just the way the book is, is intensely gripping. And that's before you add in a fantastic plot with a brilliant whodunit at the centre too. Uh, it's Dan's new novel, and it's tricky to describe, both because I don't want to give spoilers, and also it's singular. It's incredibly individual. It's a crime mystery novel set in a members club deep in the New York forests on uh, the 4th of July weekend. Uh, a detective is there under well, slightly false pretenses, and then the bodies start to drop. And it twists the genre because you, as a reader, are part of this story. You are directly addressed. I think they call it meta-mystery. If they don't, they really should start calling it meta-mystery. Every now and then the prose stops and you get a little lesson in the history of mystery novels and the tropes that are used in them. Those little bits are written very casually but almost as educational as a thesis. And also, this novel changes the style of the story. It moves from prose to, well, another method that I don't want to spoil for you a little later on. Uh, It's very intriguing, and I'm really enjoying at the moment different methods of how these stories are being told. Innovative ways of approaching a classic genre, really leaning into the puzzle aspects of things. And Dan's novel does exactly that. We chat about the decision to tell the story like that, how we set off to write it one way but was quickly sidetracked by an experiment. Also, you can hear how switching the viewpoint has completely twisted the genre and how that happened for Dan. You can hear why he doesn't write linearly too, which must be quite difficult. Also, why he learns to work outside. And after publishing this book, his first book, getting the contract signed, looking back at the way it came about, what might he do differently about writing going forward. It's all on the way with Dan McDorman in this week's Writer's Routine, and we start, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Where I usually write is one of two places. Um, is either on the front porch, um, where I'm able to see... I'm in Brooklyn, so it's you know it's a quite sort of urban area, but, but we're in a part of Brooklyn where there's homes and porches and, and so forth. So I sit on the porch... And I just sort of watch uh, the sort of life go by in the neighborhood as as I write, which is a good um, sort of diversion from your brain because you obviously can't, um, you know, look on your phone or anything like that. But when you need just a few minutes uh, for your your eyes to focus on something else as your brain, your lizard brain works through whatever, you know, narr- narrative problems are going on. Uh, people watching is fantastic. So, so that's where uh, a good chunk of the writing is done. 
Um, sometimes I do it. We have a backyard as well. Um, we're lucky in that regard. So, um, and it's pretty enclosed and private. So that's, um, a bit less people watching, although I will watch, you know, the squirrels and, and, and the blue jays like fly overhead. But, um, but that's, that's generally my, the setting. It's very wild. You're, you're, you're getting out there as much as you really can in Brooklyn to, to be at one with the environment. Uh, but, how can you be at one with your story when you're out there? I'm talking about the the the, the practical plotting aspects of it. Uh, do you have like notebooks or cue cards for something that is as intricately puzzled as yours? You must need to keep track of where you're going. So how do you do that when it's you and a laptop out in the wild? Yeah, I mean, I you I work. I mean, I work in Google Docs, which is sort of a lame, you know, I wish I worked on like some ancient typewriter and, and, you know, with a, with a tumbler of whiskey right next to me and that sort of thing. But, but, but it's 2023, I I write in Google docs and I I keep, you know, different docs for each section. I keep a doc for, uh, I'm not a huge outline guy, to be honest, Um, uh, which probably resulted in some, you know, making mistakes and having to go back and fix it. Um, but I don't, I don't find it distracting at all. Like I said, it's more when you, when you're out there, you're, and you're sort of watching things, it's a quiet neighborhood. So it's not like I'm at, uh, you know, Times Square or something in New York. Um, so it's, 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 it's a good way for your eyes to focus on something else while your brain is working through things. And so, um, I particularly, I came over the course of writing this book, uh, came to really enjoy the company of the of the cat across the street, which is sort of a half tame, half feral uh, sort of killer. And just watching her jump from stoop to stoop, um, slaughtering birds, um, there was something uh, that felt right about that uh, as I, you know, plotted the murder of various uh, fictional characters. I can say this with some confidence if you did want to write with whiskey in a tumbler i've done i've chatted to like 300 authors doing this and i think i i could count to you five that perhaps have actually written in a in a luxuriously romantic way like that who are able to lounge back and and sip bourbon so don't worry about that at all yeah i mean chris hitchens you know famously would would go out for like a four or five martini lunch and then come back and tap away on the typewriter and, and have something done in an hour, uh, which is, I think, mere mortals uh, are incapable of, of that. How did it become that for you, how you are writing? Um, uh, many people, when they, they try to sit down and write for the first time, they'll do it you know, in their study, or they'll, they might do it in a, in a luxurious chair. Why have you ended up plonking yourself outside? It's a good question. And to be clear, the porch is like inside outside. So in the, in the warm weather months, I just throw open the door, the front door and the, in the windows. And I'm sort of like half in and out, half out during winter. I would write with like a wool blanket across my knees and, and, you know, like a shawl and like frigidly tapping it out. Uh, and it would, what, you know, it was a, it was a way to get away. I've got, uh, two kids, two teenagers. I've got a dog, a cat, obviously my wife and, and it's, uh, you know, the household can be a bit rambunctious. So it was a way to retreat, um, without having to, you know, I don't know, go find some writing studio somewhere, which, um, 
I know it works for some people it would not work for me. It, it would feel like too much like going to a job. Um, so I, I needed a, a space and, and, and so the, the, the porch in the backyard were the, were the two places where I could remove myself um, and allow myself to, to dissociate from, from everything else that's going on and just sort of get into the world of the book. Is that the only place you feel like you could write? If I were to plonk you on a train and you needed to get some words done, maybe you're pushing up against deadline. How easy would you find kind of being thrown from your normal place? Um, I have done it other places. I, when, um, I've done it at coffee shops, like one of my kids is, is in lacrosse and there was a season where <laughs> every Saturday was, was a, a tournament somewhere, usually a couple hours away and involving four or five games. So you're talking, you know, three or four hours at least. Um, and I worked out a deal with, with my daughter where it's like, all right, I'll watch the first game and the last game. And then in between I'll steal off somewhere. Um, and so usually there's some sort of coffee shop, unfortunately, usually Starbucks, uh, nearby. And I would retreat there and it was, it was fine. It worked. I, I wouldn't want to make a habit of it, but it, um, but I did some, I did some good work in, in those kind of places too. Uh, we get quite niche and nerdy on the show. We're very interested in uh, ha- like what you're writing on specifically. So like what writing software and also, oh, you mentioned Google Docs. So we- we've nipped that in the bud. But right then, what typeface, what font are you using, Dan? Well, it's funny because I'm quite particular in that. So it was it was Google Docs, um, like you said. And I don't know why I chose I mean, I've never written a book before. So I, I was just sort of... Uh, inventing things for myself from scratch. Um, so it, but I, I chose uh, Garamon for the font and 11 point had to be 11 point. Um, 12 seemed to uh, garish and I couldn't see enough words at a time. Um, and I stuck to it. And in, in fact, the name of one of the characters is, is essentially the name of the in the book is essentially the name of the font I was writing in, which is Garamond and I needed a name and I was like, Oh, Garmond, there you go. Um, so, you know, names come from some ridiculous places. So there's that. And then I'm writing on what essentially is the laptop I use for work, which is some ancient Dell, which is continually in danger of overheating and dying. Um, but which I'm sort of superstitiously reluctant to, to turn in for a newer model. So um, it might, it might die Dan in the middle of this conversation uh, at this point, but it's, um, but that's, that's what it is. One of those just soulless corporate, you know, work laptop machines. I have a full-time day job Monday through Friday. So it was essentially um, mornings and then, and then evenings. I started during sort of full-blown COVID when we were still at home. So that was where the extra time came from. So instead of uh, losing an hour and a half or, or even two hours for a commute, uh, I got that time back. My kids were old enough for the first time that I didn't have to take them to school. They were you know, getting there on, the, on their own on subway and, and so forth. So that was an extra 20, 30 minutes. All of a sudden, I'm, 
I, I have two and a half hours, so let, you know, let's go. So I, I wake up, deal with uh, a little bit of work stuff, help uh, make breakfast or lunch for the kids. They go off, and then I immediately uh, slip away into you know one of my two fortresses of solitude. Uh, to work for however much time I had. Um, sometimes it was it was uh, up to two hours, depending on what time I woke up. Sometimes it was it was just like an hour, uh, which would be frustrating because you would, you know, have the first sort of meeting of the day at ten. Again, we were doing it from home at that point, uh, so I had a little bit of a sense of a race against time, and and so I was determined to to really get into it, especially it takes, I don't know how it is for other writers, but it, it certainly takes me a few minutes to, to get into the right headspace. So I, I felt like I was always working under a sort of deadline, um, which I've done professionally forever. So it was fine. Um, and then, and then that was basically it uh, for the day until the end when I would finish work and I would steal another hour or so um, to sort of go back and look at what I wrote that morning. The, the evening was more of an edit um, session and rethinking session rather than, than creating things completely from scratch. Um, so I had fairly limited time during the week. Um, and then on weekends I would wake up and, you know, usually first in the house immediately still, you know, get the coffee, steal away and write for as many hours as, as, um, as I could get away with. Um, how, what was the aim for every day of work? Were you working to a word count or it was just, I've got a little bit of time. So let's see how we get on. It was, it was definitely my unit of measurement was time, not, not word count. So, you know, I know some writers and, and certainly writers in the past have, have done a really just five pages a day, 10 pages a day. Um, I don't work like that. I tend to jump around um, and I'm deathly afraid of, of writer's block and, and putting something down on the page just to get something down on the page. So what I usually do is I flit around like a little butterfly and, and if something is not sort of flowing one part, I'll jump to another part. So I'm, I'm certainly not writing linearly. Um, so I go sort of, um, I'm like water gushing against a, you know, a, a dam or a dike. Like I'm looking for where uh, I can get through. So wherever it seems easiest that day is where I go, um, which is which is a great way of working until you get to the very end of the novel and you've you've got ten pages left. The last ten pages, you have to do it. You have no other choice, um, and then it becomes a little bit of of chopping wood. It's really interesting that you don't write linearly now we'll speak more about the novel in just a sec but the nature of it because it is this this kind of fine-tuned puzzle I would feel that would be quite hard to flit here flit there a couple of words there a couple of words back here because it, it, it it's kind of like the butterfly effect in that you know you're affecting you're changing one thing here which could end up changing things down the line and it just makes everything much harder for you it, it, there was a bit of that. I, I do a fair amount of, of going back to earlier passages, especially um, as I got it, you know, well into the middle and sort of the back half and re tweaking stuff in the beginning to match. Um, it's in, um, 
like sort of sci-fi nerds, I think call this like retcon, like you're retroactively configuring stuff. Um, but so, but for me, it was, it was not hard at all. And a lot of the, the jumping around was sort of thematic. If I was working on, um, part involving a certain character, I might go to a different scene involving that character, you know, and what would turn out to be 50 or a hundred pages later. Um, or if I was working on some particular plot point, or if I developed a certain theme, I'm like, aha, you know, it'd be great is if so-and-so mentions that, uh, when they first meet and then I would jump back and do that. So, um, so it felt very organic. It wasn't difficult at all. I mean, I did proceed in a more or less linear fashion to start with. Like I didn't, um, I didn't, uh, create an outline or anything like that before I started. And, and when, when I first started, most of the uh, plot and, and mystery of, of the book was, was opaque to me. I, I didn't know where it was going. When you're finding it tough and the words aren't coming out so easily, what did you figure out you could do that would just help them flow, that would help grease the wheels? Honestly, I, I'm not sure I ever found a solution. And my and on days when things weren't going well, uh, afterwards I was just a terrible human being. Like I would I would stomp around the house and and be grim faced and and no fun to be around and 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 um, you know my my wife would would uh, you know suddenly find a bunch of other things to do that didn't involve being around me. Um, so, but luckily I, I didn't have too much of that, um, with the first book at all. It, it, it flowed, it flowed pretty well. And I was, you know, I don't know anything about, about writing beyond what I've done, but I know enough that it isn't always like that. So as long as the, as long as it's flowing, I wasn't going to do anything to, to, you know, turn off the spigot. Now you work as a news producer, don't you, for MSNBC, is that right? That's right. When we see TV dramas, right, the the work of a news producer for a news show is is frantic work. It's busy, busy, busy. There's always a lot going on. I wonder how you dealt with the um the, the kind of moments of your day when you would have to go from uh, writing a novel, Dan, to producing news, Dan. How did you deal with that changeover and flicking the switch in your brain to do one as opposed to the other suddenly? Yeah, I mean it. In one sense, the the producing news is itself a sort of creative enterprise. I mean, obviously, not that in that you're making shit up, but that um, it is you're you're trying to tell a story, uh, you're trying to craft a narrative, you're trying to get sense of how things relate. Um, so it, it sort of scratches a similar itch. Um, one thing that that helped was that. Um, I didn't have any kind of agent or anything until long after the, this book was done. And I didn't have, as I was writing it, it was sort of just for kicks. Um, so the novel, so uh, it was, it was sort of a harmless diversion. And I didn't, I didn't think of it as, as something, as some sort of competitive thing. It's like, if you were, I imagine it's, it's the same way. Like if you were really into, uh, I don't know, tennis or something, which I am, but if you're really into tennis, you don't view that as a, as a threat to your, 
you know, for you, Dan, for your like podcasting and, and other media work, it's like a completely, it's a hobby, you know, it's something you do for fun. Um, so it, it wasn't as much of a, a turning the key, um, you know, each day as, as one might think. Is it hard to fully commit yourself to the hobby though? Um, when, you know, especially working in news, uh, I, I don't know when the show that you work on goes out, but it, I, I guess it must be very hard to, to keep that in check as it is with a lot of jobs to be a strict nine to five. Like it was, is, how tough is it to commit when maybe something happens towards the evening time and you need to slightly rearrange I mean, it, it's unfortunately I, I didn't have much choice. That the it's like I have a very demanding job. Um, these uh, times are are very uh, consuming in terms of the material, and the news cycles are relentless. So uh, I I didn't have a choice. It was it was sort of drinking from a fire hose and and trying to stay afloat. So it was. Uh, you know, I was having a ton of fun writing and, and I was, yes, I was absolutely annoyed when I was like, well, shit, now I have to quote unquote go to work, even though most of the book was written when we were working from home. Um, but I didn't really have any choice. There, there's, there's, there's no use um, complaining about it in a sense. How did you find writing as uh, almost an antidote? Because, because what you mentioned, like working in news, it is all consuming and for a lot of the time the news isn't that pleasant right now and and it's all around you all the time you can't escape it i can't escape it you work in it so like how much of your writing was a sweet bit of medicine a light spot in the day where you didn't need to think about i don't know who the president was really yeah no i mean i that's right there there was definitely a feeling of of escape like any good hobby uh, which is what it was at that time. It was it was something to take your mind off off other worries. Um, and the other thing that was sweet about it was so I'd wanted to I'd wanted to be a writer my entire life, and I spent my college years, all of my twenties, uh, trying to get something published, just like short stories. And I didn't know what I was doing, and I would. And I was dirt poor and I would, I would, you know, save penny, literally save pennies to go to the post office to mail off short stories to some, you know, random literary review, like in the middle, you know, the Midwest somewhere. And I never got anywhere. Um, never heard back, not once. Uh, never got anything published. So um, I was writing, I was freelance writing for for newspapers and, and writing book reviews and that sort of thing. But in terms of fiction, zero, no success. And so sometime around when I turned 30, early thirties, I just gave up completely and it stayed that way for the next, I don't know, roughly 15 years or so. Um, and then on a whim, I, I, I didn't know where, and I don't know why I started this book. So it was very, and it, and, it, and, it, and it was from the beginning, it was going very well. So it was, it was a joy to, to go back to. Um, but it was also this thing that um, I, had, I had dreamed of doing and I tried to do for so many years, had given up. And then, and then back it comes uh, when I least expected it. I'm 40, I'm, I'm not, I'm 47 years old. So 
it to have it happen this way, this sort of late in the game was astonishing. And so I was just sort of enjoying every every minute I was doing it. What do you think changed? What about your writing changed in the last 15 years when you've not really done any fiction writing at all? Is, is it to do with working in news? I don't know. I don't know either. It's I, 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 I wish I knew because if <laughs> I would have, I'd go back in time and, and have the 30 year old version of Dan do it. Um, but I, I have no idea what changed. I, 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 I don't feel very wise, but I, maybe I gained some wisdom. I have no idea. Um, and, but I'm, I'm happy it happened. Um, but it was, it was, no one was, was more astonished than I was when, uh, I had started, you know, in, in my, that prior sort of phase of my life, um, I had started a ton of projects, had finished very little. I was like, I don't have the discipline, probably don't have the talent either to do this. So no one was more surprised than I was when it kept going and I kept, kept working at it and it was developing and made comprehensive sense and was exciting to me. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is this is what it's like <laughs> when it works. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about what you're writing on and you, you said you wrote on Google Docs and you said you didn't know why you were just kind of making it up. It was your first time. I, I would imagine that was true for quite a lot of what you were doing. So looking back now at how you wrote this book, uh, is there anything that you would do differently or consciously change about how and why, where you write if you move towards a second and third novel? So I have written, um, I'm finishing a second novel. Um, I feel like I'm close to done. Um, most of it, well, not most, but I would say at least half of it was written before um, I sold West Heart Kill. So um, it was written in the same, you know, it was conceived and, and, and at least half written in the same spirit of like, there are no stakes. I'm doing whatever the hell I want. Um, and, and enjoying that. So I, so far, it, and so I, look, it's been two years and I've got, you know, 1.9 books written, um, which is, which is very good, I think, in terms of pace. And I don't expect uh, to be able to keep that up. So uh, I certainly wouldn't change anything about how I worked um, here um, for, the, for, the, for the next ones. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
We'll be back with more from Dan in just a second. Uh, I'd quickly like to flag that if you if you are a fan of YouTube.com, uh, if you're ever on there searching for new podcasts, I've started to really put some focus into getting all the episodes and a massive backlog of them uh, onto YouTube. So if that's a really convenient way for you to listen, uh, go and find us. We are Writer's Routine over on there. And most of our episodes, quite a lot of our episodes are there for you right now. If that's a brilliant way that you like to listen, I'd love for you to get involved and make sure you subscribe and drop the like button. I'm not sure if people say that anymore. Anyway, as well as YouTube, you can always support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine for just a few dollars a month. It really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats as often as we can. It helps me. It's a solo project, really. It helps me dedicate the time to everything that this involves uh, so I can bring you fantastic tips and advice from some of the world's best authors. Now, for that, you get uh, thanks always you get merch there is uh some bonus stuff there there is even uh ways for your book to sponsor the show so we are sponsored by plotter right now next week a few weeks after that could be your book sponsoring the show if you think it deserves more ears and ultimately more eyes on whatever you've been slogging it away on to make that happen please think about supporting us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine Let's get back into it then with Dan McDormand, our guest this week, chatting about his new genre-twisting novel, West Heart Kill. In this part, we talk about how much of it was written with the purposeful decision of being innovative. Did the tail wag the dog? What kind of happened there? Also, you can hear how he's building on books like this that have been done before, and we get into it with the very first idea for the novel, West Heart Kill. The origin story... (laughs) Uh, for this, if it were a superhero or supervillain, is uh, one day, completely on a lark, I have no idea why, I wrote, I dashed off the dust jacket copy for an imaginary book. Um, And it had a detective, it had this sort of enclosed, uh, claustrophobic setting. And then like any good sort of promotional copy, it it promised like all these... uh, uh, family secrets and, and dramatic plot twists and, and that sort of thing. None of which I'd invented yet. Um, and so I had this, this Jack copy and I showed it to my wife and, and I was like, well, I might, I might try to write this. Um, and she humored me. She's like, yeah, of course, go for it. Um, and, and we were together still in the days when I was trying to write. So she knew this was had at one time been important to me. So, that was the the idea where the idea for the story came from, um, and I don't know I don't know where it came from. I know the general idea. There's a uh, I read a quote once from Jorge Luis Borges where he said he was too uh, his claim was he was too lazy to write full novels. So what he preferred to do instead was to write short stories that were essentially summaries of novels. You see that in a few of his stories. Um, and so maybe that was lurking at the back of my mind when I wrote um, when I wrote this dust jacket copy for a book that didn't exist yet. Uh, well, what what comes next then? Very simple. This is quite, it's quite it, I, although the I, well, we've discussed that it was there wasn't that thoroughly plotted. Like it seems that quite meticulous and that there's a lot going on. So you decide you want to revisit this idea. You want to write it. I, I I guess what do you do before you just start typing away? 
so as soon as I, I did just start typing away, I, and that's where from the intention at the start was, was honestly to write sort of a, a straightforward uh, murder mystery. I didn't have a plot or anything yet, but that was the intention. But I almost immediately failed at that and fell into this particular voice, uh, which is the sort of through line perspective of the novel, which is it's written in the second person, the, the you, uh, which is somewhat unusual for a mystery. Um, and so I, that started right away and it, it felt very exciting and it seemed to open up a bunch of, of possibilities and it, and it felt some, a bit experimental. So it sort of invited me to do more things in that vein, things that were a little weird, um, a little experimental. Um, and so, and so I, I started doing that. And then in terms of the plot, um, a lot of it, the one thing that was in the dust jacket, dust jacket copy was, you know, the book takes place, um, at this, it's set in the 1970s. It takes place at this, um, sort of very elite exclusive, uh, hunting club in, in upstate New York. Um, and the one thing that I'd written in the, uh, dust jacket copy was that the t- detective, when he arrives there, he, he sees this wall of plaques, each one, uh, marking the tenure of a past club president. And he notices that one of the plaques is missing. Uh, dun, 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 you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and I had no idea why, but that was the sort of, um, seed of the, of the plot. And so it became a little bit of the tail wagging the dog. I was constructing what turned out to be a fairly elaborate, complicated, um, storyline just to answer that one problem, that one riddle for myself, which is why the hell is that, that plaque missing? How are you answering that then? Uh, is it, are you just writing until the answer lands on the page? Essentially. Yeah. I, I worked around, I had some, um, ideas for things that might be happening. I would, there's a lot of false starts, um, research, um, provided some, clues uh when i was researching the era um at that time uh it was when atlantic city which was the the only place outside las vegas that gambling was legal for instance so and that was happening uh literally that same year when i was just figuring out what the hell was going on in, in 1976 and and i thought about oh maybe that drives some of the, or the plotting without giving too much away. Um, and so a lot of it came from research and then a lot of it came from the characters themselves. The, the great thing about this club as I envisioned it was that it was sort of a hereditary retreat for all these families. And, and they were sort of founding families who had uh, bought the land and started the club a hundred years earlier. And so I envisioned this, this web of, of relationships and love affairs and vendettas and, and years or if not decades of resentments uh, all building up, which would, you know, naturally for the detective when he arrives, he is a stranger. So he doesn't know any of it. Uh, so he's discovering it at the same time as, as the reader is, uh, which seemed a very um, helpful plot device and, and, as I sort of 
invented these um, relationships among these characters, those relationships helped helped drive give give me plot ideas and and drive the story. You were talking about writing in the second person, and that leads you to quite a lot of creative. Uh, things that really haven't been done before in this genre. How, how much did you have to sit down and consciously think of those, think of devices that you could do, cunning ways that you could try and trick the reader and and stuff be, because you've landed on, very simply by switching the, um, the, the person, you, you've landed on this novel way of doing it? Yeah, it, it's, um, and I'll try not to be too uh, spoilerific. No, it's very tough, I know. <laughs> it's very tough. But I will say, so the... Um, and it's a little bit more than it's just written in second person. It's 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 um, the this the you of the second person is essentially some sort of imaginary reader in the book, um, and so the as I was doing it, I, I realized that it, it, it became a, this very interesting in an intellectual exercise kind of way um, narrative where everything is being filtered through the, the gaze, so to speak, of this imaginary reader, the you. And so people at home, and this is going to get very, sound very complicated, but people at home are, are sort of experiencing the book as it's being experienced by this imaginary reader. And there are parts where there's the, the you uh, skips over sentences of, of the book she's reading uh, to think about things in, in her own life um, and to sort of uh, when your attention flags on the on the story at hand, she is actually thinking about the mystery so far and wrestling with it in her own head, as mystery readers do. You you get to a certain point, you're like, all right, who do I think the killer is now? What's going on? I think this is this little thing feels like a clue to me. And you're constantly, as you're reading mysteries, doing this in your own head, um, and so and that happens for every mystery. So by writing it, you. I incorporated that thing that I know that happens in every mystery reader's head because it happens in my head. Uh, I incorporated that into the page. So it becomes part of the text. Um, and that started, that sort of opened the floodgates to doing all sorts of other weird stuff, I think. Um, and, and then there are things like, I don't think this is too big a, this is not a spoiler, but it gives people a sense of of what we're talking about. It ha- and it happens early on. Is first thing like this I was wrestling with was when I got to the dramatis personae, uh, the list of characters, which I felt obliged to put in. All my favorite Agatha Christie books have that. All, all you know, a ton of other books have it. Like you, you got to do it. And I realized as I was putting it together, I felt uncomfortable because I felt like I was lying to the reader a bit um, because I wasn't telling the whole story about these characters for good reason. Obviously if I put who was sleeping with who and who was going to kill who or whatever, there'd be no point in reading the book, but it did feel a bit dishonest and, um, and I didn't know what to do about it. And then, so finally I decided what I would do is I would write a completely truthful tremendous personae uh, right at the beginning of the book that includes all these, these secrets Um and then I would redact them and place like a like in a CIA document. I would put a black bar over all the parts that the readers aren't allowed to know yet. Um, and and I was upfront about it and saying I was that's that's why I was doing it. Um, and so 
that's a thing that usually happens in the in the background and I brought it to the foreground, which became a running theme of the book. My favorite kinds of books have uh, a little bit of an innovative uh, structure. Um, I love like David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. I love Nabokov's Pale Fire. Um, Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, which is probably the most direct influence on this. So I, I knew you could you can write a compelling story that that was structurally uh, innovative and, but that still kept people turning pages. So I didn't worry too much about it. And frankly, at that point I wasn't honestly, Dan, I wasn't even thinking of readers other than myself. Um, so I was like, this is the kind of book I like. Um, and the, the book also incorporates all sorts of, um, essays about the genre, sort of break out little, um, interstitials uh, among the action and what became very exciting was when and they were on things like the locked room and the dying message these key tropes also essays on like um, Agatha Christie Dashiell Hammett and what became very exciting was when these essays that were sort of embedded in the text sort of like raisin, raisins in a plum pudding or something um, I don't know if that's the right analogy but you get you get the idea uh, and the, these essays started to reflect, echo, and enable the narrative. And so there might be an essay that I put in there that foreshadowed something and gave me an idea to do something 80 pages later. Or there might be an essay I put in later in the book that I used to help explain for the reader something that happened 100 pages earlier. So it became this very organic thing. So rather than having these these experimental bits be um, extraneous to the to the book if I've done my job right they're actually part of the text and part of the story and they themselves are clues for the reader to help decipher the mystery I was going to ask about uh, kind of organic choices because uh, say for instance when you make a news show in your in your other day job, like you know the way it should go you know what should come first you know at what point the title should come in you know the questions to kind of poke the audience to get them a bit excited and you, you know that right for experience whereas this is the first time that you've that you've written a, a novel like fully like this and and pushed it to the point where it's out there in the world I guess uh, how were you like learning and how much were you thinking about the the, the tropes that you need to put in mystery fiction so I was so first of all, I, I, I wrote a mystery like I, I, this mystery, it could have been some other genre. I could have on, on, on that random day when on a lark, I, I, I wrote the dust jacket. could have been for a sci-fi book, could have been for like a coming of age, you know, Bill Gong's Roman or something. It happened to be a mystery. Now it's because I've always been a big fan of genre ever since I was a kid. Um, and there are certain authors that I, I know very well. Agatha Christie, Chandler, Hamlet, uh, Hammett, um, Doyle, but Chesterton, but I, I didn't feel like I had, a, I had a, so I had a very deep knowledge, but it was narrow. And I thought that I was, I was worried that I was not qualified to write a mystery. So as I started, I started just consuming mass amounts of primary and secondary materials about the genre. Um, 
and to reassure myself that, okay, I know, I know what the hell I'm doing. And what was exciting was that I found the, the research I was doing, I found that stuff fascinating. And, and at some point I was, I thought that perhaps readers would too. And that's when I had the idea of starting to incorporate this into the, into the novel itself. So it becomes like all the, it becomes a, t- a bunch of things at once. And if, there, if there's a criticism of the novel, it, it's maybe that it, it's, it's too much, but it it's, the goal is that it's a page turning mystery and in a classic tradition, you're trying to figure out who did what to whom and why and this sort of thing. But it's also sort of a, a, a history or overview of the genre itself in a way that is hopefully complementary and, and work together. Um, and so that became very exciting as the, as the novel played out. I don't know how aware you are of the fact that kind of the genre you've written in very specifically with more trickier mysteries and, and doing it in a novel way. It's very big at the moment with with authors like Janice Hallett over here in the UK. I know you published internationally, but who has found a really unique twist on the form, I guess. Um, how much were you aware that like other other people's write mysteries in this different way, and it's quite in vogue at the moment? So I had no idea, um, and it. But all of my favorite writers were doing funky things with the form sometimes decades ago. So um, Borges, who I mentioned earlier, was first published, obviously, as 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 a crime writer, uh, which sort of is mind-boggling now. It's, it, it, it's like thinking of Samuel Beckett first published as, like, I don't know, a self-help guru or something. But that's how that's how Borges was was first published. And and he's he's very meta, um, very internally recursive and same things with, with uh, Calvino sounds strictly mystery, but similarly Paul Oster here in the United States has a, has an amazing book. It's really three books, but they're usually, usually published together called the New York trilogy, which subverts and reinvents the, the American detective novel in, in a very literary, very daring um, way. So those were sort of my, my models. And I, I frankly had no idea um, that this sort of meta or experimental mystery thing was, was any kind of phenomenon, but it, it makes sense. I mean, mysteries almost more than any other genre I can think of lend themselves toward um, being experimental and daring. And there's a book I quote in, in West Star Kill, but um the from 1926 i think it was the hollow man but they're the characters acknowledge their their existence as fictional characters within the book itself um which it's experimental for now much less in the 1920s so uh i to answer your question i didn't know but it makes complete sense to me and lastly how much does that weigh on you kind of going forward having to think of another way of twisting the genre or are you not not concerned about kind of pigeonholing yourself like that i'm not too concerned about it the the this book that i'm finishing now is is not a mystery in in that classic sense but it is it is mysterious uh if i could if i could say that it um 
it it adapts the sort of tricks and techniques of of a mystery to sort of tell a different kind of story. And I mean, and look, any any good writing, any good compelling piece of of literature, I guess you would call it, um, keeps people reading. You should have plot twists. Dickens was full of plot twists. Um, you should have surprises. You should have, uh, you, you have to keep people turning the page. Um, and so it's, those are all um, traits associated with mysteries, but I think they're also just traits associated with, with good books. And that is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Dan McDormand for coming on the show. That brand new novel is West Heart Kill. It is out right now. On this book especially, uh, if you do pick it up, if you read it, I'd love to hear your verdict on what Dan has done and how much you think it works and whether you would like to read more meta mystery, the good, the bad. I'd love to hear all that, please. You can use the contact page, writersroutine.com. It's over there. You can also support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. You can get involved with our sponsor, who are helping support your writing, at go.plotter.com slash routine. 10% off if you use that link to pick up that fantastic software. And I will see you next week with a brand new author on Writers Routine. Until then, bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.